Good afternoon. On behalf of the Virginia Law Democrats, the American Constitution Society, and the Virginia Lawyer Chapter of the American Constitution Society, uh, welcome and thank you for coming. My name is Adam Stemple. I'm the president of the Virginia Law Democrats and a board member for ACS here at UVA. And it's my pleasure to present to you today a terrific panel on a pressing and a complex topic. We're grateful to all our panelists for their time and their insight. Twelve days ago, Justice Antonin Scalia was found dead at a ranch in Texas. This news shocked the legal community, but it didn't take long for members of that community of all stripes to start wondering what happens next. Our panel today to discuss this question uh, is Fre Professor Frederick Schauer, Professor John Harrison, and Dahlia Lithwick. Professor Fred Schauer is the David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at UVA. He's taught at Harvard's Kennedy School, the University of Michigan Law School, Columbia Law School, the University of Chicago Law School, Dartmouth College, the University of Toronto, New York University, William and Mary, and the University of Oxford, to name a few. <laughs> he holds degrees from Dartmouth College and Harvard Law School. Professor Schauer is an internationally renowned expert in constitutional law, evidence, jurisprudence, and the philosophy of law. Professor John Harrison is the James Madison Distinguished Professor of Law at UVA. He joined the law school after 10 years in the Department of Justice, including a term as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. He holds degrees from the University of Virginia and Yale Law School. Professor Harrison is an expert in more or less everything, uh, but especially administrative law, constitutional law, and remedies. Right. Dahlia Lithwick is the senior editor and legal correspondent for Slate. Aside from Slate, her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Republic, and Commentary, among many others. She holds degrees from Yale College and Stanford Law School. Our moderator for today is Professor Micah Schwartzman. Professor Schwartzman is the Edward F. Howery Professor of Law at UVA. He has been a research fellow at Columbia University and a visiting professor at UCLA School of Law. Professor Schwartzman holds degrees from the University of Virginia, the University of Oxford, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar, and UVA Law. He is an expert in the First Amendment with a focus on religion and in jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. Without further ado, thank you to our panelists, and I'll hand the panel off to Professor Schwartzman. Um, so thanks uh, to Adam and to Monica Heyman uh, with the UVA chapter of the American Constitution Society and to Daniel Cohen with the Virginia Law Democrats for um, organizing this panel. By way of introduction, I want to say a few words about Justice Scalia, who was a member of our law faculty from 1967 to 1974. He taught courses in, among other things, comparative law, conflict of law, and contracts. After serving as Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the United States Department of Justice, Scalia was nominated by President Reagan to the DC Circuit and then to the Supreme Court in 1986, where he served for 30 years. Over those years, Justice Scalia was a good friend to the University of Virginia. Uh, in addition to hiring many of our distinguished graduates as law clerks, he took uh, judicial notice of the singularity of our institution um, in United States against Virginia, a case uh, which uh, many of you are familiar with, or if you're one else, will be uh, familiar with. Um, that's the case uh, involving VMI. Um, the Supreme Court erred in referring to the Charlottesville campus of the University of Virginia. In footnote four of his dissenting opinion, a note that deserves as much fame among Virginia students um, as that other footnote four, Justice Scalia wrote, quote, the court must be forgiven by Virginians for quoting a reference to the Charlottesville campus of the University of Virginia. The University of Virginia occupies the portion of Charlottesville known not as the campus, but as the grounds. 
More importantly, even if it were a campus, there would be no need to specify the Charlottesville campus, as one might refer to the Bloomington or Indianapolis campus of Indiana University. Unlike university systems with which the court is perhaps more familiar, such as those in New York, Illinois, and California, there is only one University of Virginia. <laughs> I'm fairly certain that those are the kindest words ever written about the University of Virginia <laughs> in a Supreme Court opinion, and they probably will be uh, until one of you ascends to the bench, so hurry up. Um, um, it's, uh, it's our pleasure um, to have this uh, panel on Justice Scalia and his legacy at the court um, and uh, about the aftermath um, of his passing, uh, both on the, on the court's docket um, and on uh, the current vacancy um, at the Supreme Court. Our panel today will discuss uh, these three questions. First, what effect will Justice Scalia's passing have on the Supreme Court's current term? This term, the court is considering cases involving abortion, affirmative action, religious liberty, voting rights, compelled support for public sector unions, and numerous other issues. What will happen to those cases? A second question is, what are the procedures and politics of selecting a nominee to replace Justice Scalia? Senate Republicans have declared that they will not consent to any nomination put forward by President Obama. What are the consequences of that decision for future judicial nominations is among uh, one of many questions raised uh, in our current political circumstances. And third, what is Justice Scalia's legacy? Will his writings on originalism, textualism, and the rule of law have a lasting effect on our legal culture, or will they, as some have already predicted, fade um, as the composition of the court changes over time? Um, with that, my primary job um, here is as timekeeper, and I intend to serve um, in that capacity, uh, and I will turn uh, turn over to our panelists uh, those questions. So we'll begin with uh, Fred Schauer, and then John Harrison, and then Dahlia Lithi. Thank you very much, uh, and thank you for the, to the organizers for um, creating this event, and to all of you for um, coming. In terms of the three questions that have just been listed, I want to focus on the third, the legacy, recognizing that legacies are not forever, and when we talk about a legacy, um, we are talking at best about something that will last into the intermediate term and not long term. So let me just briefly mention four different items that are part of, in my view, Justice Scalia's intermediate term legacy. Um, first is in the area of free speech and free press. Uh, Justice Scalia um, was one of the leaders uh, of what we might call the shifting valence of free speech, free press, First Amendment kinds of considerations. That is, Back in the 1950s, when one of the big free speech issues was what to do about communists, socialists, and various other ists, uh, and in the 1960s, when the big free speech issues mostly surrounded Vietnam protests uh, and civil rights demonstrations, during those periods and into some part of the 1970s, broadly and simplistically speaking, free speech was the province of the political left. Uh, most of the arguments made for strong free speech protection came from uh, the left of center. Uh, most of the opposition came from the right of center. That has changed dramatically. Um, whether we think about 
issues of commercial speech uh, or campaign finance uh, or some number of others. Uh, the political valence, the political direction of most but not all free speech arguments has changed quite dramatically. Justice Scalia, perhaps most angrily uh, in his opinions in the abortion picketing cases, um, has been one of the leaders, if not the only leader, um, or one of the leaders in this shifting political valence of free speech ideas. Uh, no longer do we think of the strongest free speech arguments as coming from the left. Uh, Justice Scalia, assisted by others, but he was clearly the leader, uh, the first um, and the uh, loudest um, in shifting how we think about free speech issues. Second, you all learn, I hope, um, as first-year law students about stare decisis, the obligations of what I like to call horizontal precedent, that is the obligations of a court to follow the previous decisions uh, of that court, not just a court above. Justice Scalia was probably the most prominent uh, critic of the very idea of stare decisis in the Supreme Court. Um, he uh, articulately said, uh, I recognize what stare decisis is. I understand the arguments for stare decisis. I don't believe in them. Um, occasionally, he said things like this in his opinions, mostly off the bench. His view was, I took an oath to support and uphold the Constitution. I did not take an oath to support and uphold my predecessor's misreadings of the Constitution. Um, he, I'm not sure whether he put it in exactly those words, but pretty close. Um, and occasionally, um, he would make exceptions from that view. Uh, in extreme cases of protectionism, he was willing to strike down uh, state statutes under the Dormant Commerce Clause, even though we thought Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine uh, was mistaken from the outset. But in general, he put on the agenda a genuine question about whether the Supreme Court is under any obligation at all um, to follow the decisions of previous courts. Third, um, uh, as Micah mentioned in his introduction, Justice Scalia in issues of both statutory interpretation uh, and constitutional interpretation has dramatically shifted the nature of the debate. Uh, it used to be a debate between so-called living constitutionalists and original intent people, of whom the most prominent in the 1960s and 70s uh, was probably Raoul Berger. Um, original intent has, if not entirely, largely dropped out of these debates. The debates are not no longer about original intent, but about original public meaning. What was the ordinary meaning of these terms, um, uh, whether in constitution or in a statute, at the time that they were adopted? That's a dramatic change. This is due almost entirely to Justice Scalia, his on-the-bench and off-the-bench writings, his on-the-bench uh, opinions uh, and off-the-bench writings, both about statutory interpretation and about constitutional interpretation. Um, whether it be the University of San Diego's Center for Originalism or a large number of books and law review articles, uh, the entire nature of the debate against or 
the entire nature of the position against so-called living constitutionalism has been shifted from original intent to original public meaning. That will last for some time. That's almost entirely Justice Scalia is doing. Finally, uh, and perhaps less prominently, um, although perhaps more importantly in terms of actual litigation and actual cases, uh, Justice Scalia has had a huge impact on actual criminal trials, um, including domestic violence tr um, cases, including child abuse cases, by virtue of his very vigorous and very robust defense of the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment. Um, whether it be uh, his initial opinion in Crawford versus Washington or some number that have come after that. Um, he took the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause very seriously. Uh, large numbers of people uh, who have no idea about the difference between original intent or uh, an original meaning, uh, or who could care less about stare decisis, uh, who have little exposure to free speech, are nevertheless people who on a daily basis, whether as prosecutors, defense lawyers, or as defendants, deal with Crawford and the Confrontation Clause revolution. That will again possibly last for some time. Again, it is part of Justice Scalia's legacy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to say a little bit about all three of those questions, primarily about the third. On the first point, I'll just say, now that the court has an even number of members. The question is, what will they do when they are evenly divided? And they have two options. When that happens, they can either proceed to decide the case by affirming the decision below by an evenly divided court, or they can not decide it and hold on to it until they have an odd number of justices. One thing I have not been able to determine, I've been in a couple of conversations about this with a number of people here who know something about how the Supreme Court operates. Um, we had about 45 minutes on this yesterday afternoon. What happens if they are divided four to four on the question of what to do as between those two options? <laughs> and if, if, any, if anyone knows the answer to that, please, please tell me, because we were not able to find it in any, in any, regular, in any regular source. The second, the second thing I'll say just a little bit about is the, sort of the, what's going to go on with nomination and confirmation. And the short, the short answer is it is entirely up to the president whom to nominate, and it is entirely up to the Senate what to do about that. And the current Senate has, has indicated that they are not even going to hold a hearing. My own guess, just from the standpoint of thinking about the politics of it, is that that is what they will do. But promises in Washington last as long as promises in Washington last. Um, they are good until they are, they are good until they are not good. Um, what really matters, of course, is what happens in the elections this fall. And I would say that there are four possible configurations that could result. Democratic President, Democratic Senate, Democratic President, Republican Senate, Republican President, Republican Senate, um, and, and Republican President, Democratic Senate. But actually there are, there are five, as one of our colleagues pointed out to me, because you know, there's a Jefferson angle to everything. <laughs> and in part because of what happened with the Jefferson-Burr electoral tie in 1800, the 20th Amendment provides that the new Senate comes into session on the 3rd of January and the new president takes office on the 20th of January. That is so that if either the House or the Senate has to choose the president, as in 1800 and 1801, it will be done by the new Congress rather than the lame duck Congress. But the result is another possible configuration 
is if a, in particular, if a Republican president is elected, but the Democrats take control of the Senate, I don't think that's terribly likely, but anything can happen in American politics, especially this year. Um, <laughs> one, one possible configuration is a Democratic Senate and a lame duck Democratic president. And my guess would be that the president would make a nomination and the Senate would, con would, confirm, the, would confirm the nominee. If that doesn't happen, as I say, it's the other four uh, configurations. Two of those would be smooth sailing. That's the way it's been for the last six Supreme Court vacancies. The other two configurations would be, well, I was about to say Armageddon, <laughs> but I've, I've been to Armageddon. I, I worked on Supreme Court confirmations for a Republican Justice Department with Democratic Senates, and the next time will be whatever is a step up from Armageddon, because the stakes are, if anything, higher, and the parties are, if anything, more polarized, especially on issues related to the Supreme Court. So Armageddon plus. Is what we will is what we will see if the presidency and the Senate are in are in opposite hands. Now a little bit about Justice Scalia's lasting legacy. And the the first point I want to make is that there will there will be one. It is not necessary that one be able to vote on the Supreme Court in order to have a major impact on American law. See, for example, Richard Posner, perhaps the single most influential American legal thinker in the last 50 years. Some of that comes from what he's done on the Seventh Circuit. Most of it comes from what he has done as an academic. He is not on the Supreme Court, and probably after his advocacy in favor of selling babies, he wasn't going to be. <laughs> um, never the, nevertheless, Posner has been immensely influential because of the positions he took, the analysis he put forward, and perhaps most important, the issues he raised and the questions he put on the intellectual agenda of both the bench and the Academy. And Justice Scalia has put extremely important issues on, on, the, on the agenda. And he's probably best known, Fred talked about a number of issues as, as to which Scalia has raised questions that people then have to grapple with. I think he's probably best known first at the micro level for his critique of legislative history. And then at the macro level for his advocacy in favor of meaning rather than intent. And I don't want to tell too many stories, but as to, as to both of those, I was sort of an eyewitness. Uh, then Judge Scalia first surfaced his critique of legislative history in a case called Hershey when he was on the DC Circuit in 1985, in which he quotes at length the colloquy on the Senate floor, the point of which is largely that Senator Bob Dole, then chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, had not in fact read the Finance Committee report that would become the authoritative legislative history for the statute in question. And Senator Armstrong was making that point to say, we're going to vote on the bill, not on the committee report. Well, I first heard uh, Judge Scalia talk about that very exchange in Congress when I was clerking for Judge Bork, and he was talking to Judge Bork about it, and for some reason I was in the room. I, I now wish I could remember the circumstances <laughs> under, under which that conversation took place. But I'm quite sure I was present for it for the following reason. Before clerking for Judge Bork, I had been for a couple of years a tax associate and had been taught that Senate Finance Committee reports were absolutely authoritative. And just, Judge Scalia shook me out of my dogmatic slumber. And I have never, I have never believed it since. Um, <laughs> second, on the switch from original intent to original meaning, then Judge Scalia proposed that and that change of language in a speech he gave to an event I attended. And, um, Attorney General Meese held a day-long conference about economic liberties in the Constitution. The lunch speaker was Judge Scalia, and Judge Scalia talked about the problem with intent, 
and the need to change to meaning, original intent to original meaning. So I saw that, I saw that happen too. Beyond just telling stories, I want to, I want to say that on, with, with both of those criticisms, Judge and Justice Scalia raised fundamental questions that have occupied scholars and will continue to occupy scholars for some time because they are so basic. For example, one reason to switch from intent to meaning and one reason to be a skeptic of legislative history is because of doubt about the possibility of collective mental states. Is Congress an it or a they? This is something that Professor Schwartzman has done important work on recently. People are working on answering that question and part of the, part of the answer, because of course it's being provided by academics, is yes and no. That is to say, it is very, it is very difficult, and these, these are the results to bring Jefferson again in. Jefferson's friend, the Marquis de Condorcet, was the pioneer of this. It is very difficult to say that a collectivity, say a legislative body, can have a shared intent in the sense of having shared preferences as to outcomes. The entire problem of social, cost, so, social choice functions, Condorcet and Arrow and Arrow's theorem, demonstrate how difficult that is. So if legislative intentions are understood in those terms, and that's the, those are the terms of legislative intention that Justice Scalia primarily wanted to criticize, it is very difficult for there to be shared intentions. By contrast, it is much easier, and Professor Schwartzman knows more about this than I am, to say that a large number of people share a linguistic intent, share a mental state directed at some kind of linguistic or communicative object, a meaning. And of course, that's the sort of thing that Justice Scalia said did constitute the law. So in that respect, and there's a lot of very sophisticated work being done right now, the question Justice Scalia raised is extremely important. The second, the second point he made, or a related point related to what he said, has to do with the idea of communicative content and its relationship to the law. Fred mentioned the Originalism Center at the University of San Diego. I was just out at their conference last weekend. And, and, and at a lot of conferences, all the really interesting conversations take place afterwards, after the papers are presented. And after one of the papers was presented, uh, three of us, um, two I guess you would characterize as originalists and one you would characterize very much as not originalists, had a really interesting and, and quite abstruse, I understood parts of it, um, con conversation about the question, what is the relationship between communicative content if you think a text is the law and legal content, are they necessarily the same thing? And one possibility is that they are not quite the same thing, that there is some relationship between the two, that somehow meaning produces law but is not law. If that sounds like angels dancing on the head of a pin, to some extent it is. But it is, the, it is, a, it is a serious question at least to address. The answer may be it's not a real question, sometimes that's true. But if it is a real question, it's as somebody has said to have written in a copy of the Bible, important if true. Um, if, this is a, if that question is a genuine one, then having an answer to it is extremely important. So that's another, that's another topic on which Justice Scalia has, has raised and brought on the agenda some extremely profound issues that people will continue to grapple with, certainly for the next couple of, the next couple of decades. In the long run, who knows, in the long run, the sun will burn out. Um, the, last, the last thing I'll say along those, along those lines is that Judge Justice Scalia's impact will be greatest insofar as it is cut loose from debates between right and left, and hence insofar as it is cut loose from his vote on the Supreme Court. There, it's liberals and, and, and conservatives, 
But these questions, questions about collective mental states, questions about exactly what legal questions are, don't have that valence or have it only a little bit. They are, in the currently fashionable word, orthogonal to ordinary right-left debates. And so the last, the last thing, I know you didn't come here for a reading assignment, <laughs> but the last thing I'll say is to suggest, if you want to know more about Justice Scalia as a thinker and in particular as a constitutional interpreter, and get some really interesting context for his thinking, there's a case you should read. It's Ullman against Evans. It's 750 F. 2nd, 970, uh, the D.C. Circuit, 1984. You can tell that it is cut loose from political valence because uh, then Judge Scalia on the D.C. Circuit cited as a matter of outcome with a communist. And that's not a metaphor, I mean a communist. And had a quite sharp and fascinating interchange about constitutional interpretation, the difference between, in some sense, text and intent, the levels of abstraction at which constitutions are to be understood, whether constitutions should be understood textually or in terms of their purpose, with another judge who was a pretty serious student of constitutional interpretation. And between them, they really uh, frame the issues in a, in, a, in a quite enlightening fashion. So again, you should read Ullman against Evans, 750 F. Second, 97. Uh, well, I want to start by thanking the organizers and uh, thanking uh, Micah for including me. Um, I'm going to just uh, play a journalist, uh, which is what I do best, uh, and talk. I I'm going to amplify, I think, on all three points. Um, and, I, and I just want to say I've been thinking a, a lot about the effect on this term, the question about this term, because, you know, in the first two, three days after Justice Scalia died, everybody said, you know, this, all these unbelievable, right, this was going to be the term of our lifetimes, and we forget that, but this was going to be the term that we all told our grandchildren about, except maybe now it's not. But, you know, we were going we were going to decide affirmative action, we were going to decide abortion, we were going to do Hobby Lobby 2.0, then we were going to do voting rights. Oh, and then we were going to do Obama's uh, immigration reform. So this, this might have been a hugely consequential term. And uh, the first take, I think, out the shoot, everybody said, well, now we're just going to have a bunch of 4-4 angry four fours and there's going to be, you know, confusion and a patchwork of different laws in different jurisdictions and nobody's going to know uh, what the law is. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I think the court probably won't let that happen. I think that John Roberts is very astute. I think that the last time the court was shorthanded in the transition between Sandra Day O'Connor and Alito, the court was very, very careful uh, to not uh, look like it was imploding, and we saw a lot of very narrow decisions in that uh, time. We saw uh, a lot of jurisdictional decisions. There are ways for the court to not, in June, uh, being a front page issue, where it looks as though the court is an angry 4-4 court, so boy, America, you better get out and vote about the U.S. Supreme Court. That's John Roberts' nightmare. Uh, he was at pains to say two weeks ago, long before any of this started, we are not Republicans and Democrats do not think of us as a political entity. Uh, what he's saying is very, very clearly, and he said this for a long time, uh, you know, Ted Cruz stopped talking about me because I'm not the issue this election. And I really do think that there are ways, whether the court decides to hold over cases, it's tricky to hold over cases if you're not gonna have a court 
the next year. So that would be the obvious thing, is to just re-argue everything next term. I don't think we're going to have anybody seated in October, so holding things over doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But I think by some combination of having re-argument in some cases and uh, having tiny jurisdictional decisions, we may not see uh, an explosively angry term at the end of this term. I think all of the justices want absolutely nothing to do with being an election year issue. Um, and I think the other thing that I just find really interesting is that one of the consequences for this term and going forward is that if you look at the number of cases that were fast-tracked to the court this term, uh, whether it was Friedrichs, whether it was Evanwell, um, whether it was the uh, Immigration uh, Appeal uh, or the Clean Air Act, these were not cases that got to the Supreme Court by way of normal uh, sequential uh, procedures, that whole machine has kind of collapsed. The idea that we can get to the court really, really quickly has, uh, uh, I think, gone away. Uh, and so it's just going to be really interesting to see. This is kind of the last term that I think we're going to have for a while, depending on who's seated, where that fast track uh, get this in front of the justices quickly because Sam Alito really wants to decide X. Uh, I think that uh, has vaporized and I find that a fascinating uh, proposition. In terms of what's going to happen next, I just have to agree. Anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen next is lying. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen next. What we do know is that uh, President Obama has said he will put up a, a, a name. I suspect he will do that in the next few days. Uh, I think he's going to put up somebody. Uh, I do not think he's going to put up uh, the Republican uh, governor of Nevada. Uh, but I do think he's going to put up someone who is uh, mainstream in his view, and I think very likely he will put up somebody who got uh, Senate confirmation by a 98 or 97 to 0 margin uh, by all the senators who are now saying they can't vote. Uh, so I think we are very likely to see uh, somebody who has just uh, been confirmed. I think that for folks who are hoping uh, that Obama is going to just pull the ripcord and nominate Pam Carlin or Brian uh, Stevenson, uh, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, and, and even if Obama had the Senate and had uh, the possibility of confirmation hearings, I think by temperament he is not a person who was going to put up uh, the liberal version of Antonin Scalia. And while you know all sorts of people can write that piece over and over again in the Huffington Post, uh, it doesn't make it happen. Obama's been really, really clear that what he, uh, you know, and he said this time and again, and we should probably listen to him. I have a lot of respect for Justice Marshall. I have a lot of respect for Justice Brennan. The time for that kind of justice is over. And I will, uh, you know, he believes that elections matter. He believes that uh, it is not uh, appropriate for there to be uh, liberal activists on the court. And I don't think even in his dream scenario he would put someone up. He's been very clear yesterday in his statement that you may have read on SCOTUS blog that the things that he values are uh, people who are, you know, clear, clear, uh, scholars and deeply knowledgeable about the law. And he says over and over again, he said this when he tapped Sotomayor, he said this when he tapped Kagan, what he really values is people who have this quality of empathy, the ability to get out of the 
dusty law books. He always says that with such contempt uh, for a con law professor. He loves dusty law books, but he always says, you know, he wants somebody who can walk in other people's shoes, that what matters to him is somebody who's had a lived experience that is fundamentally different from the lived experiences of the uh, other justices who all have remarkably similar lived experiences. If you look at uh, where they were born, where they went to law school, uh, their job descriptions coming into the court. And uh, uh, he says, although uh, we'll see, that it's terribly important to him to put up somebody whose life looks different from that. And I think it's ironic that that was Justice Scalia's critique of the court in his Obergefell dissent, right? We all were like hydroponically raised underground to be on this court. And we've got we've to branch out, says Scalia. Um, we'll see if uh, Barack Obama could name someone like that. And even if he could, I think there will be no hearings uh, until after the election. So I, I guess the question is, Given that we're in a situation right now where we have complete and total gridlock, we have uh, a president who wants to uh, nominate someone and uh, a Senate majority uh, a leader and uh, a Senate Judiciary Committee that are saying we simply, not only will we not uh, vote, we won't have hearings or even uh, meet this poor candidate if they're dragged into our office. Um, I think there is this real question of is it gonna matter? And it's really interesting to me because it's not clear to me that Americans care all that much about the court. Uh, they historically have not. Historically, Republican voters care a lot more about the court. But I think that the, really the gamble is whether this becomes a political problem. And we know from the early polling that it's a political problem in some of the swing states. It's a problem for uh, you know Kelly Ayotte. It's a problem for Ron Johnson that, you know, to be perceived as this obstructionist, but I don't really know if this becomes uh, a voting issue in uh, November. So I think the last thing I would say is that, you know, when you're looking at the list of the kind of people uh, that Obama wants to put up, I think it is worth remembering that this really will be his legacy. He has been at pains to put up women because that was important to him. He, it was important to him uh, to put up uh, the first uh, Latina justice, and he did that. And uh, I don't think he's going to think casually about this. I think this is uh, a seat that is going to matter tremendously to him. And the only other thing I would say is that this has become such a profoundly symbolic conflict. I think that the symbol of what justice Scalia represents, I mean, I haven't seen a, a symbol like this, the death of a symbol like this since Reagan. Uh, and I do think if you want to do the, the mind game of imagining that it was another uh, conservative justice. I'm not sure that it would have taken on the sort of galactic uh, drama that this has taken on. Uh, the last two things I want to say are in terms of Justice Scalia's legacy. Um, I do think that uh, we can talk a lot about the extent to which originalism has become the only game in town. And after Heller, we all sort of said, you know, we're all originalists now, right? Even Breyer's an originalist now. This is insane. Uh, but I think it's really worth reflecting that if you count the noses of originalists left on the U.S. Supreme Court, there's one. Uh, and it's Clarence Thomas, and that the other conservative justices, certainly uh, neither John Roberts nor Alito, uh, hold themselves out as originalists. Kennedy holds himself out as a Kennedyist, I think. Um, and that, and that uh, it's really, really interesting to me that you know when we have these discussions about how uh, originalism sort of has changed everything, that it's entirely possible that there's only 
one true originalist uh, left on uh, the Supreme Court, I do think that, and, and uh, this goes to the point that it doesn't matter who's left on the Supreme Court because where it mattered was in the academy. Uh, Scalia was always very, very clear that he was writing not for his colleagues, uh, but for law students. And that is where I think the legacy really does uh, become hugely consequential in that, you know, none of us, none of us who've gone to law school uh, when Scalia is on the bench uh, can say that we're not completely shaped by his interpretive approach and his style. And I think that's uh, the difference. I think that the other place that Scalia's massive legacy uh, lies is just in the way he chose to write for the public and not for the court. And that if you look at how in his wake, both the Chief Justice and Elena Kagan are at pains to write the way he wrote, to write uh, in tweetable units, and to write in ways that move the needle in Congress and move the needle in public discourse. That is a Scalia legacy, and I think it's important. Uh, the last thing I would just say about him is this question of tone. Uh, and, you know, as, as uh, the last few years as his tone became more and more inflammatory in his writing and on the bench. I think there was a real feeling, I guess it was voiced most pointedly by Erwin Chemerinsky at UC Irvine, that it was affecting the way he saw his students write and talk to each other. And that there has been, I think, I don't want to call it a coarsening, I'm not exactly sure what to call it, but uh, a willingness to, to speak much more sharply uh, uh, at the court that I think he did uh, put his imprimatur on, right or wrong. And I do think that uh, you see it in other opinions, you see it in other legal writing, and you, I do see it uh, uh, absolutely sort of filtering out into the world. And so one of the questions uh, that I do often have is whether the tone shifts back in his absence. So I'll stop there, uh, but I'm happy to take questions about any of this. Thank you.